Well, if you like to party, and I know that some of you do, I want to suggest to you that this is the place to do it. This is the best party going in the world. No, I'm serious. Think about it. December 25th, the feast of the incarnation, the son of God being born into the world. And I know all of you celebrated all 12 days of Christmas, right? You don't have to raise your hand. It's all right. And then, and then yesterday, the feast of the epiphany, the, the wise men, the, the chalking of the doors, these peculiar things that we do to make our Christian identity known with signs and symbols that manifest the spiritual substance in our lives. Today, another party. You're not worn out, are you? You're here, so you can't be. Today, we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. But also, it doesn't take a master's degree in theology to recognize that here we're presented with another what we call paradox in Scripture. Here's the consideration. Why is the Son of God, who we say never sinned, doing what sinners do and getting baptized? To answer the question, let's go back to the big picture, what we call our theological meta-narrative. You can look that up when you get home. Let's talk about Jesus' baptism in the context of what I was just talking about, the church calendar. The church calendar, as you recall, actually begins with Advent. That's when we in the church talk about things like Happy New Year. The word Advent means coming, and the season of Advent spans four weeks. For four weeks, we prepare ourselves for the coming of the Christ into the world. And these four weeks of Advent are intentionally marked by four themes which are symbolized by the four candles of Advent. Hope, peace, joy, and love. These are the things that will be fully realized in the culmination of Christ's kingdom. For anyone and everyone who sees the wrongs of the world and wants them made right, Advent is the church's declaration that God will do it, and in fact, He is doing it. How? As we just said, it began with the Incarnation. The Feast of the Nativity. Christmas as we commonly know it and call it. And what do we say at Christmas? And the Word was made flesh. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What a powerful theological reality. And as Father Charles and I preached about during the season of Christmas, we said that we can appropriately describe the incarnation as identification. That is to say that because God loves us so much, he wants to unite himself to us. He wants to join himself to us. As Father Charles appropriately said last Sunday, he wants to wed himself to us in the closest way possible. And the best way to do that is to become like us, to enter into this world with us, to experience life as one of us from birth through childhood. Yes, children, Jesus can identify with your struggles. 
to mature manhood, even suffering and death? Yes, my friends, God himself tasted death. He himself knows the death that we all die. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus became like us in every way, except, as I said, for one thing, he did not sin. Which brings us back to today, his baptism and the season of epiphany that we're now in. And it renews the question, what's happening here? Why is Jesus getting baptized? Why is he doing what sinners do if he himself did not commit a single sin ever? Well, the answer is this. Jesus came for more than just identification. He came for redemption. He came for redemption. Because God loves us, he identified with us in our humanity. He joined himself to us in the flesh. But also because God loves us, he was not contented simply to experience this life as we know it. That is to say, living and and loving only for all of it to end in suffering and dying. It was not just about identification. No. Here's what Jesus said, and you know this. He came that we might have what? Life and have it more abundantly. But here's the thing. You know this. In order for these words to be true, he would have to defeat the power of death. And in order to defeat the power of death, he would have to deal with the stronghold of sin. In other words, he had to bridge the gap between his holiness and our sinfulness. But how? Not by committing any sins himself, but by identifying with our need to be cleansed from sin. And so as Jesus went down into the water, as he submerged his body into the river Jordan. He showed us the outward and visible sign of baptism, of being washed with water. A clear sign that we are dirty and we need to be made clean, but not just on our bodies, in our souls. So this part is made evidence to us as Jesus rises up out of the water. The moment he rose up out of the water, the scripture says, the spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. I love this painting that we've represented. The spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. And and what this does, let me be so clear about this. This tells us what Christian baptism is actually is. Christian baptism is the receiving of the Holy Spirit, period, paragraph. That's what Christian baptism is. When you are baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. Here it is. And this ratifies what John the baptizer had just prophesied. We just heard it this morning. He said, I baptize you with water, but after me comes one who is mightier than I am, whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize. He will. Amen. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
In other words, listen closely to what I want to say next. What Jesus' baptism and Christian baptism is telling us is this. This is what it's saying to us. That Jesus became like us in our humanity, that we might become like Him in His divinity. That's what's going on. He became like us in our humanity that we might become like Him in His divinity. That Jesus joined Himself to us in flesh that we might be joined to Him in the giving and receiving of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens in Christian baptism. This is why baptism, as 1 Peter 3.21 declares, now saves you. This trips up so many people in talking about baptism. Peter goes on to say it's, it's not as a removal of dirt from the body, for Peter himself says that water water's the sign. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. But as an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So how does God cleanse our conscience? He gives us His Holy Spirit. He gives us His Holy Spirit in baptism. And therefore, baptism is the beginning of our redemption because by it we are made regenerate. That's what it means to be born again. This is how we are adopted into the family of God. But I also want to be very clear about a couple of things. Yes, yes, objectively, absolutely, baptism is salvific because by it God gives us His Holy Spirit. He gives us Himself. But no, baptism is not magic. It is a gift. And just as we can receive it, we can also reject it. For Jesus himself tells us there is an unpardonable sin, which is blasphemy or rejection of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, for us to say otherwise is to say we lack the very thing that is central to love, which is free will. Moreover, as Jesus also tells us, those who persevere, what? To the end Those who persevere to the end will be saved. So where am I going with all of this? I'm going to the last thing that I want us to see in this morning's scripture. The part where Jesus has come up out of the water and the spirit has descended upon him. And this voice from heaven, the voice of the father declares, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. So now let's put this all of, all of this together and ask the question, what's happening here? Identification, yes. Redemption, yes. But also manifestation and inauguration. In other words, baptism is neither the end of the story for Jesus nor for us. Epiphany in the church calendar is simply another way of saying manifestation Jesus manifests as the Son of God. Jesus manifests for the salvation of the world. And Jesus manifests here at His baptism to begin His ministry. The ministry of making disciples. That's where I'm going with all of this. Baptism is but the beginning of our salvation. Becoming disciples is the continuing work of it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2.12. Let us continue to work out our salvation 
in fear and trembling. And let me take us back to the Great Commission, which we'll hear again later in Epiphany. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. How many nations? All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So, for these coming weeks in the season of Epiphany, Father Charles and I are going to do what we talked about in September. Our theme this year, as some of you will recall, is growing up with us in Christ. And yes, there are so many ways for us to do that here at Christ the Redeemer. First, I want to say this. I want to say how thankful I am to and for each and every one of you in this room and those who couldn't be present with us this morning and the ways that I see you already engaged in our biblical core values at Christ the Redeemer, worship, discipleship, mission, prayer, stewardship, fellowship, evangelism. Even so, at least in my opinion, there's nothing like a good sermon series to renew and refresh our call to discipleship. So as we prepare for these coming weeks in Epiphany, I want to leave us with this final thought to ponder. Again, from our old friend C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, which if you haven't figured out by now is actually a must read for all of us as Christians. I'm just saying, if you're still looking for a New Year's resolution, let me commend that one to you. In his timeless treasure, he titles one of his chapters this way. He calls it the invasion. The invasion. The invasion. And at the end of that chapter, he writes these words for our very thoughtful consideration. He says, enemy-occupied territory... Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, in disguise. And he's calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And when you go to church... You're listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. Think about that. The the word of God, the sacraments administered, the presence of the spirit, the angels, the archangels, and all the company of heaven who laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee. We'll get to that in a minute. That's why he says, that's why the enemy is so anxious. That's why he's so anxious. To prevent us from from going or, or coming. And he does it, get this, and we can talk about how true this is today, but it's always been true. So let these words soak in, but contextualize them for the world we live in today. He does it by playing on our conceit, our laziness, and our intellectual snobbery. Those are the wiles of the devil. That's the war we're in. Friends, I don't have to tell you that this world is at war and we ourselves are at war in so many ways. But let us neither be fooled nor naive and let us neither slumber nor sleep for this is the truth. 
The physical warfare that we see all around us is the result of the spiritual battle that is fought in every single human heart. The battle over who will be seated on the throne of our heart. Will it be the world? Will it be our flesh? Will it be the devil? Or will it be the rightful king, Jesus Christ himself? There is but one path to victory. There is one path to victory. Jesus tells us to be disciples and to make disciples of all nations. How many nations? All. All nations. All nations. And the very best way to make more disciples, the very best way to do it is when you and I invite somebody to become one. It's the very best way when you and I invite somebody to become a disciple.